Good afternoon. My name is Mark Donald and I serve as one of the elders of Covenant Hope Church. It's great to see so many of you here with us today. Um, let me add my welcome to Channels. Uh, we are taking a break from our series in uh, 2 Timothy and we'll be back in 1 John, which I've been working through slowly through this year. So if you have your Bibles, please open them with me to uh, 1 John. It's towards the end of your Bible. We'll be spending our time in 1 John, the very end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. I uh, love my dad. Growing up, I wanted to be just like him. Some of you have had the pleasure of meeting my dad, or maybe some of you have seen him as he's visited with us here at Covenant Hope a number of times. And you could probably tell pretty quickly that it was my dad. We look quite a lot alike, and we have similar mannerisms, we speak similarly, and you could probably tell that we were related. My dad is the youngest of ten children. He has uh, five sisters and four brothers, so it's five boys and five girls, and he is the baby. When I was growing up, we didn't see my dad's side of the family an awful lot. We lived here in Dubai. But whenever we got together with the Donald side of the family, especially my aunties, but both my aunties and my uncles would say about me, oh, he's just like Charlie. <laughs> they have Scottish accents because they're from Scotland. And unfortunately, I didn't inherit that from my father. But they would say, he's just like Charlie. It always made me very happy to hear that. They could see that I share a lot of his characteristics and his mannerisms. They'd say things like, he talks just like Charlie. He smiles just like Charlie. He makes dumb jokes just like Charlie. <laughs> we all share characteristics in common with our parents, don't we? There's been times when I've been out with Hannah in Dubai, and uh, the context was not one where we would expect to meet anyone that knew her family, but people have said, you're a Parks girl, aren't you? Because they know Brian and Joanne Parks. And they say, yeah, it's undoubtable. You're a Parks girl. In our passage today, we will see that John is going to tell us that if we have God as our Heavenly Father, that is, if we've been born again by Him, it will be evident to all. Just like it's clear to everyone who knows my dad that I am Charlie Donald's son. John wrote this letter to Christians to assure them that they were God's children. He wants them to be confident that they have come to know Jesus Christ. Because if you know Jesus, we know God the Father. We've been forgiven and we have the hope of eternal life. What could be more important for us to know than to know that where we're going to spend eternity? So John has given us three tests that we've seen in, so far in the letter. Three tests to help assure us that we actually know Christ and are truly his disciples, if we are. The first test that we saw was the obedience test. If we truly know Christ, we will keep his commandments. Not perfectly, but noticeably. We'll walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. 
If we're his followers, we'll walk in the way that he walked, John said. And if we fail and we fall into sin, we confess our sins and we turn once again to following Christ. The second test that we saw was the love test. If we are truly Jesus' followers, we will love other Christians. If we love Christ, we'll love his bride, the church. And alternatively, we'll not ultimately love this world and the things in this world. Above all, we will love him and his people, our spiritual family. And the third test that we saw last time we were in 1 John was the truth test. If we truly know Christ, John said, we will abide in the truth about Christ. We'll treasure it, we'll protect it, we'll remember it, and we won't deny the truth about him. As we continue through the letter, we'll see John comes back time and time again to these tests. And he looks at them from slightly different angles. He phrases them in slightly different ways. But he's repeating these ideas to try and fill in a collage of what the picture of a Christian life looks like. In our passage today, we'll see that John returns to the first test once again. But this time, he doesn't talk about obedience or walking in obedience. He talks about practicing righteousness. So we could relabel the first test The righteousness test. We'll see that in our passage today. But before we dive in, let's go to the Lord one more time and ask him for his help. Heavenly Father, we ask you to give us grace to abide in your son, Jesus. By your spirit, cause us to practice righteousness in our lives. Help us to resist the temptation to sin. May it be evident to all that we are your children. And may some who are here who don't know you become your children today, we pray. Amen. So if you haven't already turned there, please turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. And we'll be, I'll be reading beginning in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. 
No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The big idea of this passage is this. God's children hope in Christ's return while practicing righteousness. God's children hope in Christ's return while practicing righteousness. The Christian faith is a historical faith. We spend a lot of time looking back at history and looking at what God has done in the past. But we must also remember that the Christian faith is a forwards-looking faith also, as we see in these verses. John's told us already that this world is passing away, the dawning of a new age is rising, the darkness of this present world is passing away, and he encourages us to see that this life is simply the waiting room to real life, eternal life. A week today, next Friday, will be six years since the day that I asked Hannah to marry me. I remember the excitement that I felt when I got down on one knee by a lake in Tennessee where Hannah was at university and I asked her to marry me and she said yes. But pretty quickly, the excitement disappeared and the waiting began. The longing and waiting for the day, the big day, when Hannah would be my bride and our lives together would begin. For Christians, our life is like that. We're waiting. We're looking forward and longing for Jesus to return so that we will be with him forever. We see that in the first point of the sermon. God's children hope in Christ's return. God's children hope in Christ's return. And we see that in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, and then the first three verses of chapter 3. So 28 of 2 through 3, 3. God's children hope in Christ's return. John mentions Jesus' return twice in the very first verse of our text. He repeats his command to abide in Christ, and then he gives us the reason why. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. The language in this verse here of Jesus' appearance and his coming carries the idea of a royal visit. The arrival of a king or an emperor visiting a part of their kingdom to be present among their servants, their people. When that happened, preparations would be made so that the arrival would be met with much celebration by those who were their loyal subjects. But John tells us that when Jesus returns, people will react in one of 
Only two ways. Did you see that? There will be those who are abiding in him. And they will have confidence. Christians eagerly and confidently await the return of the king. They've been waiting for it. They're ready. They've been abiding in him. And now he's arrived. And they can boldly and with great assurance experience his presence because they know him. They know the king. They've been abiding in him. But everybody else will shrink back from him in shame. They'll be defiant no longer. They won't resist his will any longer. They'll shrink back in shame when the king arrives. Just like our father Adam and Eve did when they hid themselves in the Garden of Eden when God arose and came to see them. They hid because they had sinned. Anyone who has not trusted in Christ and remained faithful to him will shrink back in shame because of their sin. But there will be nowhere to shrink back to. There will be nowhere to hide. Friends, ask yourself, how would you react if the Lord Jesus were to return today? Would you be ready for his coming? Or would you want to hide in shame because of your sin? Christians don't have confidence because they're sinless before God. We have confidence because our sins have been dealt with. We know the one who paid the price for our sin. And we're striving to remain faithful to him and become more and more like him. Look at verse 29. John says, if you know that he is righteous, you can be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. John shows that abiding in the truth about Christ is inseparably connected with being like him. If you know him, that he's righteous, you will undoubtedly act like him, practicing righteousness. Christians want to be like their king and their savior, Jesus. Listen again to what he says. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. The evidence of knowing him is clearly seen. You can be sure of it. It's clear in the lives and actions of his followers. As we've seen in the letter so far, John draws an unbreakable connection between what we say and know about Jesus with how we live our lives. Simply put, Christians' walk will be matched by their talk, and their talk will be matched by their walk. John has used lots of different expressions to describe Christians in the letter so far. He's talked about Christians as those who have fellowship with God. And with one another, other Christians, those who walk in the light, not in darkness, those who know him, those who are in him, those who keep his commands, those who walk the way he walked, those who love their brothers. But here, for the very first time in the letter so far, John speaks of Christians in a new way as those who have been born of God or are God's children. He picks up this idea in verse 1 of chapter 3. And I I love the way the NIV 
translates this verse. It says, See what great love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Isn't that amazing? Incredible. John, the last standing apostle, he's an old man at this point. He's nearing his death. He's still marveling at the love of God. Just mentioning being born of him leads him to this outburst of wonder that God in his great love has lavished his love on us by making us his children. He commands us to see it, see what great love, to behold it, to look intently at it, to study it. Christians hope in Christ's return because they have been called God's children through God's love shown to us in Christ. We've been adopted into God's family. We've become one of his children. He is our father and Christ is our brother. Becoming a Christian results from a loving call from God in our lives by which we're transformed into his sons and daughters. This is astonishing We should be amazed by this and marvel at it. Even though the world doesn't recognize it, it's not evident to them. But that's because they don't know him. And we do. For the Christian, the truth that we've been brought into the family of God, have become his children, is simply astonishing. Imagine for a moment... If Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon.com, the richest man on the planet, he's got a fortune of over $110 billion. Imagine you got a phone call from him. Imagine he called you and he said, hey, Bryce, you're going to be my son. You're going to be an heir with me of all of my fortune. Imagine, Ruth, if he said, he called you up and he said, You're going to be my daughter. Your life would be changed. It would be insane. Your life would not look the same ever again. How much more so that the God of the universe, who owns everything, has brought us and called us personally and made us part of his family. J.I. Packer helps us reflect on just how incredible this truth is. He says, Do I as a Christian understand myself? Do I know my own real identity? My own real destiny? I am a child of God. God is my Father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer to Him. My Savior is my brother, and every Christian is my brother too. We should marvel and be astonished at this good news that we have been called into his family. As well as there being a present aspect to this reality, he says we are God's children now. John tells us in verse 2 that there's a future aspect also. He says what, will, what we will be has not yet appeared But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. John calls us to reflect on this incredible gift of being called God's children and how that will be completed when Jesus comes back. 
We hope in Christ's return because we'll be with him. But even more than that, we hope in it because we'll be transformed to be like him. What a day that will be, brothers and sisters. Don't you long for it? Aren't you longing to see him so that you'll be like him? The day when you'll be perfectly conformed into the image of our Lord Jesus. That you'll be with him and you'll be like him. You'll be completely free from sin and its consequences in your life. No more trouble with temptation. No more sin or shame. No more sorrow or sadness or brokenness. No more death. No more tears. We'll be like him. And we will live with him in ever increasing joy forevermore. That's the hope for every Christian. That's what we long for. That's what we look forward to. John concludes this section in verse 3. He says this sure hope in Christ's return actually begins the work of transforming us today. Look what he says in verse 3. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Christians prepare themselves for Jesus' return by purifying themselves now. Cutting out sin from their life. Putting it to death. Saving faith in Christ is a transforming faith. It doesn't leave us as we are. Fixing our minds on Christ and his return spurs us on to live holy lives today. Do you want help in your fight against sin? Your fight for holiness? Meditate on the reality that Jesus is coming back soon. And when he appears, you'll see him face to face and you'll be made like him. But notice that John doesn't say everyone who thus hopes in him ought to purify himself or even that they might purify themselves. No, he says everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself. This is an optional. Christians who are hoping in Christ, what he's done and his return will purify themselves now. Which takes us to our second point of the sermon. God's children practice righteousness. We see this in the remaining verses, verses 4 through 10 of chapter 3. God's children practice righteousness. John turns from reflecting on the future hope that Christians live in light of to considering the present reality for God's children. He begins by reflecting on sin in verse 4. And he exposes sin for what it really is. Lawlessness. Sin isn't just bad habits. It isn't missing the mark or falling short. It is those things, but it's more. It's a violation, a breaking of God's law. It's active rebellion against God's will. In order to pursue holiness in our lives, we have to look sin straight in the eyes and realize what it is. We have to see it for what it is. Sin is standing in opposition to God. It is enmity with God. It is rebellion against Him. And here we see that everyone who sins is a lawbreaker. Standing guilty before the law. John doesn't leave anyone out. He doesn't speak about bad sins and less bad sins. He speaks universally. There are no exceptions. All of sin is lawlessness. It's breaking God's laws. And he says that everyone who practices sin, whoever makes a practice of sinning, 
It includes everyone. The scope is universal. Everyone is a sinner and all sin is rebellion against our holy God. But John goes further. He goes deeper. He shows us where sin originates. Look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Do you see what John's saying here? Sin is rebellion against God, which originated with the devil himself. As we all know, sin entered into humanity because the devil successfully tempted Adam and Eve to join him in rebelling against God. John wants us to understand sin isn't a small thing. It's huge. It puts us against God. Ultimately, we see here that sin is satanic. And if that weren't enough, John goes even further. He says that if we make a practice of sin, we aren't God's children. We are the devil's children. We're of the devil. Just as Jenny read for us earlier from Psalm 51, David confessed that we were born in iniquity. And in sin were we conceived. We were born as rebels. We were not born as children of God. We were born as children of the devil. John's words are intended to shock us, to wake us up, to warn us about the danger of sin in our lives. Maybe that's exactly what you need to hear today. Sin is serious. And sin is against God. And sin is from Satan. But John also points us to the Savior from sin. Look with me at verse 5. John reminds them to look backwards to Jesus' first appearing. He tells them what they already know, he says. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. John reflects on the first arrival of Jesus, the incarnation. When God the Son became a man, taking on flesh and being born in our likeness. We're going to celebrate this in a few weeks time at Christmas. The arrival of Jesus, the first appearance of Jesus. And why did Jesus come? Why do we celebrate Christmas? Because Jesus came to take away sins. God in his love and mercy sent his son to overcome our lawlessness. Jesus was perfectly qualified to do so because he was without sin. He obeyed God entirely. In him there is no sin. John stresses this fact That Jesus was sinless multiple times throughout this passage and throughout the whole letter. It's it's so important to him. It's such a treasure to him, this truth. He says in verse 29 of chapter 2 that he is righteous. He says in verse 3 of chapter 3, he is pure. He says here in verse 5 that in him there is no sin. Jesus, the sinless one, came to take our sins away. These words echo the words of John the Baptist who when he saw Jesus said, Behold, 
Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He did this by offering himself as a sacrifice for sin. Our sins were taken by him, on him, and borne on him when he died on the cross. He paid the price for them through his death. And John tells us in verse 8 that the reason he came, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Sin and lawlessness is rebellion against God and is from the devil. But through his death on the cross, Jesus destroyed the works of the devil. Our sin. He conquered them, rising from the dead in victory. Did you see then how sin and being in Christ are incompatible? It can be for those... It it, it can't be possible for those who are abiding in Christ to abide in sin. Practice sin. Go on sinning. If we're God's children, do you see that we can't keep on acting as his enemies as well? Jesus came to take away sin. He came to destroy it and to set us free from the tyranny of Satan and sin's reign in our lives. John says that it can't happen. If you are Christ's, you can't live in him and live in sin. Look at verse 6. He says this clearly. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And again in verse 9 he says it clearly once more. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. As we've seen throughout this letter, John speaks in black and white terms, doesn't he? Do these verses make you feel uncomfortable? What is John saying here? What does he mean? Immediately, we're all aware of the presence of sin in our lives. Is John saying that if I have sin in my life, I'm not a Christian? Well... I think the key to understanding what John is saying is found in those phrases, keeps on and makes a practice of. John isn't teaching that when people are converted, when they become Christians, they never sin again and they live perfectly ever after. He's not talking about instances of sin in our lives. He's talking about ongoing, continuing Keeping on practicing of sin in our lives. We know this is true that he's not talking about sinless perfection. Because in chapter 1 verse 8 he said. If we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And again in chapter 2 verse 1 he said. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. And even from this passage that we've just read ourselves, he's told us that we aren't what we will be when Jesus appears and we're made like him. John is speaking about the pattern and direction of one's life. The lives of all believers are to be characterized by righteousness, not sin. And increasingly, more and more, marked by righteousness. John's not talking about perfection, but rather a new direction in our lives. 
a new way of life. So it's important to ask ourselves, was there an observable change in your life when you came to know Jesus? Is your life characterized more by righteousness and Christ-likeness or wickedness and sin? And are there patterns of ongoing sin in your life that you are not dealing with, that you're ignoring? Are you repenting of sin and seeking to put it to death in your life daily? Observing this kind of change takes wisdom And I think it implies that it takes time too. You can't observe a pattern in your life or in uh, another person's life from one afternoon with them. Rather than looking at a snapshot of our lives, we need to look at the whole film reel. Not just one page of our diary or biography, but the whole chapter of our lives. Observing this change also requires the help of others. We can be deceived about our sin. And that's why God has given us the church. Tell someone in this church this week, someone that you meet with, tell them if you see ways that they are acting in righteousness. Give them a specific instance of Christ's righteousness that you've seen in their life. And then ask them if they see Christ's righteousness in your life. As well as that, tell them about sin in your life. And ask them to hold you accountable and help you to put it to death, not make a practice of it. If there are patterns of sin in your life, do not ignore them. Or give up fighting them. Or hide them. Confess them to the Lord and seek the support of a brother or sister in repenting of it. John's saying that there is an observable change in our lives when we become Christians. When you have come to know Jesus, when you've seen him with the eyes of faith, your life will be transformed. It will not be the same again. John explains why that is in verse 9. He tells us, for God's seed abides in him and because he's been born of God. John here gives us the ultimate cause of why anyone is a Christian. The first cause, the first reason is because they have been born again. When someone's born again, it's like God gives them new spiritual DNA. And just like the physical DNA that we have, that we receive from our parents, giving us our physical characteristics, God's word and his spirit and his seed abiding in us causes us to be characterized by his character and his likeness and Christ's righteousness. John is repeating the teaching of Jesus about the need for spiritual rebirth or regeneration. We don't need to just be cleaned up a little bit, we need to be made new. We need to be born again. We read about this doctrine in our church's statement of faith earlier in the service on page 9. Look back at that with me for a moment. Look back at page 9. In that statement, we acknowledge that there is some mystery to this. This new birth. 
We say it is affected by the power of the Holy Spirit in a manner beyond our comprehension. That means we don't fully know how. We're not sure. Jesus says it's like the wind going wherever he wills. The Spirit brings people to life. We see here that it happens internally. It gives us a holy disposition to our minds. And it secures our voluntary obedience to the gospel. And that it results in fruit. The fruit of a transformed life. Newness of life and works of righteousness. Becoming a Christian begins with God. God by his spirit working in your heart and your mind. To obey the truth of the gospel by believing in Christ. Resulting in a transformed life. That's what it means to be born of him. That's what it means to be born again. It's essential that we understand this. Practicing righteousness doesn't make us children of God. Being born again as children of God makes us practice righteousness. Getting it wrong is as silly as thinking that I am Charlie Donald's son because I walk like him. Or I sound like him. Or I look like him. No, I walk like him and sound like him and look like him. Because Charlie Donald is my dad. And I am his son. His DNA is in every cell in my body. God's children practice righteousness because they are God's children. Not in order to become God's children. Holiness is not the way to Christ. Christ is the way to holiness. So how should we respond to this incredible news of God's sovereign work of making us alive in him? Christian, rejoice. Rejoice that God graciously made you alive, made you born again, called you into his family and gave you the new birth by his spirit. Just as John encourages us, marvel at the astonishing love of God that he should make a rebel like you and I, his child. And strive to live like him now. Strive to live a righteous life now. As we've seen, John has given us lots of ammunition for our fight for purity. Here's just a few ways that you can arm yourself against sin and you can pursue holiness in your life. Make a note of these things. Make a note of these ways that you can work them into your daily devotion to Christ in order to grow in holiness. The first thing that John told us was to reflect on the Lord's return and his righteousness. Reflect on the Lord's return and his righteousness. We saw that in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 2. The second thing that he told us to help us to strive for righteousness now is to reflect on God's love for us in calling us his children. We saw that in verse 1 of chapter 3. Thirdly, reflect on seeing Christ face to face and being made like him. We saw that in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 3. Reflect on the awfulness of sin and what God has done in Christ 
to overcome it. We see that in verses 4 through 8 of chapter 3. Work these in to your daily devotion to the Lord and they will help you to pursue holiness and righteousness of life. Beholding more of Jesus makes us more like Jesus. But what if you are not a Christian? What if you're here and you're not a Christian? You know you're not a Christian. Or perhaps you're here and you're not sure. After all this talk about practicing sin, you're wondering, I don't know. I don't know. What you need to do is recognize that you need to be made new. You need to be born anew. That you, like everyone else, have sinned against a righteous and holy God. That you are spiritually bankrupt on your own. But that Christ, the sinless one, came to take away sin by burying it in his body on the tree. He took the wrath our sins deserve. He died the death that you and I should have died. He did it so that we might become children of God. And he rose in victory over our sin and over Satan. And he calls you to turn from your sin. To turn away from living for sin. To turn away from making a practice of sin. And turn to trust in his son Jesus. And his finished work at the cross. When you do that. When you turn from sin and trust in him. You are counted righteous. And you are begun to be made righteous. And you begin to practice righteousness in your life. You can trust in him today. Trust him today and tell someone. We'd love to help you to begin your new life as a child of God. John also warns us that we shouldn't be deceived about this. In verse 7, look with me there. He says, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. When we've been born again, we will practice righteousness. As Christ is righteous. But John sees that it's possible to be deceived about this. It seems that those who had tried to deceive him, them before, that John had previously called the Antichrists, were also denying that holiness mattered very much to your life. That righteousness was an optional extra. John is arguing against that idea. Against the idea that it's possible to be a Christian, but to keep on sinning and expect to be forgiven when you see Jesus face to face. It's not enough to say you love Christ if you don't look like him. Don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. Train yourself to look for the evidence of genuine faith in other people's lives and your own. One is not simply a child of God because they call themselves one. Someone can call themselves a Christian, but they can fail the righteousness test. Anyone whose life is marked more by sin than righteousness shows that they don't really know Christ and they aren't really his child. That might be hard to come to terms with for us. You may have dear friends who are like this or even family members who say that they're Christians, but you don't see any evidence of righteousness in their lives, they probably don't know Jesus then. 
It's not loving to them to allow them to remain deceived into believing that they're okay with God. Point them to Christ. Warn them about the seriousness of sin. Remind them of the love of God that he's shown us in sending Christ to save us from sin. Finally, John summarizes and concludes this section in verse 10. He says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John says that we will see the evidence of those who are his and those who are not. It will be evident. It will be clear. Are you marked by righteousness? Is your righteousness expressed in love towards other brothers and sisters, towards other Christians, meeting with them, serving them, encouraging them, and helping them to live righteously now? If so, then you can be confident that you are a child of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do marvel at the incredible news that you have loved us. You have called us to be part of your family. You have sent your son to take away our sins, to pay for them in full on the cross, to die the death that we deserve and to rise from the dead in victory. Conquering our sin and conquering the devil. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live lives of righteousness now that show that we're your children. We pray that you would help us to fight sin, to put it to death, to not keep on sinning, to not be content with any level of sin in our lives, but to fight it by your grace and your spirit for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.